This is the fifth day of the 7-day November 1976 session. Before continuing on uh, with the Mumon Khan, let me read a very inspiring passage to you from the biography of Suyun. Suyun <coughs> is one of the most famous uh, present-day he died about 10 years ago, uh, Chinese Zen masters. He died at the age of 119. Many of you have probably read his uh, biography, which was uh, published by the Empty Cloud Press, which is by two members of the center. It was from a translation by, uh, by Charles Look. <clears throat> this particular passage is taken from the book The Practice of Chinese uh, Buddhism from 1900 to 1950 by Holmes Welch. <coughs> and by way of uh, brief introduction, Suyun was, this was in the year 1895 when he was on his way to attend a, a long session in in this monastery. And on the way he had fallen into a river and he had become gravely ill. And then he says, Awaiting death, I sat diligently in the meditation hall day and night. My concentration become so, became so pure that I didn't know I had a body. After a little over twenty days, all my ailments were suddenly cured. From this point on, all my thoughts suddenly ceased. My practice began to progress. Day and night were the same. When I moved, it was like flying. One night during the rest from Zazen, I opened my eyes, and suddenly there was a great radiance, like broad daylight. I could see through everything, inside and out. <clears throat> At this point, three boards were struck. This would be something like clappers that are struck here. And this, he says, was about 2.30 a.m. On the third night of the eighth week of my meditation, during the recess after the sixth period, the attendant was pouring hot water out to each one. Some splashed on my hand. My teacup fell to the ground and broke to bits with a loud noise. Suddenly the roots of doubt were cut. In my whole life never have I felt such joy. It was like waking from a dream. I thought of the many decades of wandering since I had become a monk. I thought of the hut by the yellow river and how when that fellow asked me what water was, I did not know how to answer. At that moment, if I had kicked over Wen Chi's kettle and stove, I wonder what he would have said. And now, if I had not fallen into the water and gotten very ill, if I had not been through easy times and hard times that taught me lessons and changed my understanding, I might have almost missed my chance in this life. And then how could this day have ever come? So I wrote the following gata. A cup crashed to the floor. The sound was clear and sharp. 
the emptiness was shattered and the turbulent mind fell suddenly to rest. <clears throat> but today we will take the next koan in the Mumon Khan. This is koan number eight. And it's called, well, Ketchu Makes Carts, or Ketchu's Wheel. Well, perhaps Ketchu Makes Carts might be a better title. And the case reads as follows. Getan said to a monk, Ketchu made a hundred carts. If you took off the wheels and removed the axle, then what will it be? And then we have Mumon's commentary. If you can immediately see through this, your eye will be like a shooting star, your response like a flash of lightning. And then the verse. When a wheel spins rapidly, even a master wheelwright can't make heads or tails of it. It moves in all directions in heaven and earth, south, north, east, and West. Very little is known about this master, Zen Master Getan. He was a Chinese master. <coughs> and uh, in the Zen lineage of Dharma transmission, he was a grandfather to Mumon. And although he lived comparatively close to Mumon's time, little is known about him. The Ketchu here was uh, said to have been the uh, the inventor or made the first card in China and presented it to the yellow, the famous yellow emperor. And he made various carts. The first one that he made was, of course, the simplest uh, that, that could be made. It is a two, two wheels, an axle, and some kind of a platform on top <coughs> of it. Later on he made some very fancy ones with a number of spokes, a hundred spokes, which was supposed to be one of his great achievements. Ketchu made a cart whose wheels, well, sometimes it's uh, a cart uh, made a, well, this here translation has with a hundred spokes. But anyway, take the wheels and the axle away, and what will it be? In other words, if you take away all of the parts, what's left? Here, of course, a cart is being compared to our life, or our life is being compared to a cart. 
This Ketchum must have been very famous in China. Well, he would be as the one who made the first, the first conveyance. And so Getan uh, used this very uh, commonly known name and the fact of the cart to illustrate the quality of our life. When we stop to think of it, we are always caught up in duality, subjectivity, objectivity, beautiful, ugly, good, bad, profit, gain, plus, minus, high, low. We're always being oscillated between these two poles. always being forced to make a choice or to, do, or to govern our lives by the good, for example, and to avoid the evil. High is considered to be better than low in most cases. Beautiful, better than ugly. And of course, profit more desirable than loss. We're constantly being thrown off balance. By, by this pull. And of course, many in our daily life, particularly in a social sense, we also find the same kind of pull. Such and such an organization we should join because it is devoted to the good of man. Such and such an enterprise will bring profit and avoid loss. Then, of course, there come along other kinds of enterprises where we are told it is the one that is desirable. That to, to think of oneself and not others, this, of course, is a, is a selfishness, but we must get beyond self and other, good and bad, all duality and come to the one. So we have organizations like the United Nations, or uh, there is still, I believe, some organization uh, of one government, all, one international government. And after a while, the one becomes another kind of polarity, which stands against the many. And so once more we find ourselves being, <coughs> being driven, as it were. <coughs> the question always becomes, how can we transcend? How can we send, transcend duality? transcend even monism. We can say the wheels, of course, stand for duality. The axle stands for monism or unity. To the degree that we can, that we can 
base, this duality, in the, in the underlying unity, we have certainly added a great measure of stability to our lives. We know that when a, when a wheel is not running true on its axle, there's friction. This friction uh, can be related to our daily life in the sense of interpersonal. Our interpersonal relations have friction to them. We do not move smoothly. Our life does not, ar- does not ride along smoothly. But when we have transcended these dualities, there's a smoothness in our life. It's like a fine car. Isn't very likely the axle is, isn't very likely to be uh, getting off its pivot. Kitchu was said to have been uh, not only famous as a as the maker of the first card and other subsequent cards, but he was also famous, it seems, for his. Uh, tremendous ability to absorb himself in his work. It was said that Ketchu really transcended himself in making a cart. He was a no-cart cart maker. Of course, this is true with any kind of a <coughs> real artistic endeavor. If an artist is going to create something really outstanding, he must transcend his tools, his hands, if he's a painter or a weaver, whatever. We speak of this as being, reach a state of no-mindedness, the self-transcendence in the, in the narrowest sense of the word. After a while, there's no, <clears throat> one isn't aware of oneself or the thing that one is creating. It just creates itself. There's a, <coughs> they say in Japan, there's a saying that that the secret of horsemanship is no rider on the saddle, no horse under the saddle. Of course, to attain this state takes a great deal of training, just as in Zen transcend our ordinary life of duality takes a great deal of training. <clears throat> to achieve this kind of samadhi, samadhi condition is not, is not easily attained by any means. And there, at this point there's a very vital question that comes up. This is a question that one very, very often hears in Zen. One of the things is Zen in the art of, of ba- baseball playing, Zen in the art of running, Zen in the art of piano playing, <laughs> as well as Zen in the art of karate, and although it used to be Zen was associated with these things in a more direct way. But these other activities, 
Shibi Amadoshi very pointedly inveighs against this kind of thing. He says it's completely a misnomer to use the word Zen in such a context. Because while one, while one playing a piano or riding a horse or running may achieve a state of no-mindedness, this is far from Zen. It's only the smallest element of Zen. In Zen there must be a real transformation of character and personality so that in one's daily life one functions on an altogether different level. In the case of the person who's playing a piano or engaging in any of the martial arts, the samadhi that one achieves is only in relation to that particular art. And when that art is over, one is back again pretty much to where one was before. It's the same thing with painting. Very often people will ask at workshops, what is the difference between the samadhi of, uh, of an artist or in the martial arts and the samadhi of Zen? Why can't an artist come to enlightenment? And the point is precisely in that without Zen training, and this always implies without a mind that seeks the way and all that that implies, and this, and the, uh, the rousing of the doubt sensation. There can't, be, <coughs> there can't be this awakening which is so essential. And this is really what the koan, what getan is really pointing to. When you remove the axles and you remove the wheels, what is it then? What is it then? It's interesting in this connection of art and Zen that uh, the great, uh, the great Italian uh, who did the Sistine, Ch- Michelangelo, probably one of the greatest artists of all time, and yet in his uh, biography it is written that. Uh, when he was close to death, he bewailed the fact that all of his art had not brought him any closer to God and better that he had stayed a stone mason, which is where he started life, than for him to engage in all of his art. A very poignant, very significant uh, fact. Here was a man who had created what are considered to be the greatest religious creations and yet they had very little effect on him. It's the same thing in, <clears throat> you recall in the Three Pillars of Zen in the introduction to the Dogen material, where Dogen's, uh, where the discoveries of modern science and, and Dogen's own <clears throat> uh, self-discoveries are compared. And on a certain level, there seem to be a great similarity between them. The whole notion of the universe today as, the, as atomic scientists or physicists see it and as, and as uh, Dogen states it in time and being are very much the same but the big difference is that whereas enlightenment brings about a transformation always assuming that one continues one's training the discoveries of of uh, modern of scientists 
Far from bringing them peace of mind, has brought them great anxieties and great fears. And this is a very important point. <clears throat> what will it be then? So long as we're still on the level of philosophic notions like duality and unity, we still haven't reached the topmost peak. They, they give a certain measure of, of stability to our life, to be able to see through the, <coughs> the underlying unity behind all all diversity. This is a very important insight and does bring a measure of at least intellectual calm. But until there has been even a short glimpse into the experience of this, there's always a chance that the wheels of our life will get some grit in them or that this fine motor car will get stalled. This fine motor car we call our life. We come to Mumon's commentary. If you can immediately see through this, your eye will be like a shooting star and your spirituality like lightning. If one can achieve this awakening, if one can have the experiential awareness of removing all the parts of the car, all the parts of the cart. And one is able, in every situation, to move freely. This means to size up situations, not to wobble. This does not mean, and this is also another important point, this does not mean that the Zen person, here we're talking about the highly developed person, becomes an expert in every line of endeavor, no matter what, what situation he's in, uh, he's, he can expertly appraise it. It is true that if he's a highly developed person, long training, he is master of his life and not slave, but this doesn't give him certain technical knowledge. Many years ago, when Yastani Roshi was in Rochester, he was asked this question about whether the enlightened man becomes expert in all fields. And he said, no, absolutely not. And I have seen enlightened people with long training who've made what seemed even to me to be incredibly stupid statements when they go outside, when they talk in the field of art or economics or politics and so on, all of which call for specialized knowledge. Then he went on to say, however, no, no one who claims to be an expert, and actually the Japanese word meijin is much deeper than expert. It would be more like our word past master in the sense that we speak of, of uh, Rembrandt or 
Michelangelo or Beethoven as being past masters. The word magian has more of that meaning than expert. He says, but no man can call himself a magian unless he has seen into the basic emptiness of all things. In other words, had the experience of awakening. I will be like a shooting star and your spirituality like lightning. I'll be able to move without, without thinking. There'll be spontaneity and sureness. This again doesn't mean that, that uh, the enlightened person may not be, not be sure of what particular cost to take a certain situation has come up. But there isn't the usual kind of, of backing and filling, as the expression has it. You see some people who have an important problem and it just weighs on their mind. What shall I do? What shall I do? They go to this person, they go to that person. And they're in a constant stew. Then we have the, the uh, Mumon's verse. When a wheel spins rapidly, even a master wheelwright can't make heads or tails of it. It moves in all directions, in heaven and earth, south, north, east and west. When our life is harmonious, who can say why this is so? We are able to do the wonderful things. We have the freedom to lift a finger and move the heavens, as one of the verses says. To lift a foot and shake the earth. This wonderful free working of our marvelous mind. Who can say why this is so? Moves in all directions in heaven and earth, south, north, east, and west. Here again, this, this true mind. There is a <clears throat> an old waka, which means a verse, Japanese verse, quoted by Shimayabadoshi, which goes: "The mind turns and works in accordance with ten thousand situations." Wherever it may turn, it is mysteriously serene. The mind works and turns in accordance with 10,000 situations. Wherever it may turn, it is mysteriously serene. There's a passage of Dogen somewhere where he speaks about in doing Zazen, and we begin after a while to <coughs> get beyond thought He says that when necessary, necessary thought will arise when needed. This is, a, this, this is a point here too that worries people. They feel that 
if I bring my mind to a samadhi-like condition, if I concentrate only on each thing, don't dwell on the past, don't hope in the future, don't be, con don't be worrying about the present, well, what's going to happen to this mind of mine? What's going to happen to all uh, this precious knowledge that I've accumulated? It won't do me one single bit of good. But this is the wonderful thing about this mysterious mind. When thoughts are needed, they come up. So we don't have to be concerned about that there's going to be a deterioration of the mind. One finds that a lot of dross that was in the mind goes away. It is a fact that when you've done Zazen for a long time, you find yourself, lots of things just don't, you can't recall. Sometimes people, people will think, well, gee, a person is getting, particularly if it's an elderly person, they think that person may be getting slightly senile. They don't seem to remember things, or they hesitate. And there seems to be this kind of a pull that the unnecessary things in one's mind begin falling away. The kind of the dates you try to remember, Uncle Joe's uh, birthday and uh, Aunt Mary's uh, birthday or something, wedding date or something like that, that you always thought was so terribly important that you must send them a card or something. Those kind of things drop away. And the mind actually works stronger, although to the unperceiving eye it seems to be not doing so. This is why Mumon says that your eye will be like a flash, your response will be like a flash of lightning. Your eye a shooting star. There's another, there's another aspect to this case that could be mentioned. The uh, Hinayana, so-called Hinayana view, that everything that is made up of causally related component parts is subject to dissolution. This, of course, is true of our body. It's true of everything else. We find many, uh, many quotations which point this out. There's a very famous uh, dialogue between Nagasena, who was a monk and uh, way back, and, and King Melinda, in which he gives the example of Buddhism by a cart. And then we have Lao Tzu talks about emptiness, that what makes uh, a house is not the, uh, not the parts, but it's the emptiness, not the things that build it. There's also a, a Japanese saying uh, to the effect that <coughs> you put grasses together and tie twigs one to another and you have a cottage. You dismantle it and take it to pieces and there you have the original grass field. And this is a, is a doctrine 
Well, then, then from there you get the doctrine of uh, emptiness. This is Lao Tzu's doctrine. The, the very uh, primitive one was this one of just the component parts are all subject to decay and dissolution. Then you have the doctrine of emptiness, which of course teaches that everything fundamentally is empty. And Lao Tzu comes along and says that it is this emptiness which makes a house a house, and not simply the accumulation of its parts. But in Zen, <coughs> you go one step further. And this, of course, is illustrated beautifully by this metaphor of the card. After you've taken away all the parts, and even emptiness itself, what then? We have the ten oxiding pictures. Those of you who are familiar with the history of the ten oxiding pictures know that there have been many, many versions of them. Some have been five, uh, six, seven, eight, and so on. And then, of course, eventually we got to the ten. The present version of ten, which appears in the three pillars of Zen, you remember the number eight as a circle, which represents emptiness. an emptiness which when broken through is really a fullness and and the Chinese master who added the other two the other two uh, diagrams to that sequence as you remember in the last one it shows a very happy-go-lucky uh, rather fat uh, well, somebody rather walking into the marketplace, smiling broadly. He's got a wine bottle, a gird, which was used as a wine bottle also in ancient China. One hand, and broadly he grins. This is the tenth stage. Imagine showing a picture like that as representing the highest, the highest development of Zen Buddhism. is very significant unless unless we return after the emptiness and really emptiness is a is one of these provisional words there's an old there's a dialogue between a Chinese master and a uh, well scholar philosopher comes to him and says they've been talking about the void and the the uh, philosopher says to the master if you are talking about the void as existing, surely you are implying that it has uh, extensive, that it, it, well, it occupies uh, space. It has form and extension. And if you say that it does not exist, then why go to it for help? And the Master's answer was, it is only, it is only said provisionally to those who have not yet awakened to their true nature that the word that the word emptiness is used to those who understand there is no such thing as emptiness
cannot speak of our life as being full of our life as being empty. To eat your meals, to do your job, whatever it is. Take care of your family if you have a family. To do all this smoothly, which is to say free from friction. What else is there? Duality, monism, good, bad, beautiful, ugly. It's only clutter up our minds. But it's one thing to say this, it's another thing to be able to live by it. And of course, being a Zen master, Gettan here is urging upon his monks, he's pointing to their true mind, which is beyond all of these concepts, urging them, of course, to realize this true mind. Because it is only with realization that these concepts no longer become barriers in the mind. This koan, by the way, is considered by Hakuin to be one of the eight difficult koans in the Mumonkan. It's a wonderful koan to, to demonstrate, really, when one understands it. Oh, it seems, on the face of it, to be a rather mundane kind of call. Oh, all right, we'll stop here and recite the phone.